We're back and pleased to be able to say welcome once again to Bill Walton. He is the star of the Bill Walton podcast program, a terrific TV resource that I commend to all of you. He is also a man we visit with each week to take advantage of his expertise in the world of finance, in which he succeeded handsomely in Wall Street, and then as a leader of the conservative movement, the Council for National Policy, of which I'm very proud to be a member. He is a utility infielder on what is facing this country at the moment, and we're always delighted to have a chance to visit with him. Bill, welcome back to Secure Freedom Radio. Thank you, Frank. As a utility infielder, I feel like I've got four or five batters at the plate. There's a lot to catch right now. There is indeed. Um, Let's start with uh, the topic that I've been visiting with uh, our previous guests, uh, Sam Faddis and Gordon Chang, about. Um, You have been watching closely what's happening inside China, and we've been talking about this mostly in connection with the rising power and aggressiveness of China, the degree to which it is likely to benefit from, certainly be emboldened by the fiasco that the Biden administration has unleashed with its Afghan policy. But talk a little bit about what's happening that suggests some very well, turbulent things are developing inside China on the economic and financial side of the ledger. Well, Chairman Xi is cracking down on all the major companies in China, and he wants the whip hand, and he's cracked down on the technology companies, some consumer product companies, education companies. And the upshot is that uh, just as recently as Friday, uh, stocks of Chinese companies uh, hit a fresh wave of selling and they're down, you know, Alibaba is down about 50% from, uh, from its highs and all of them are off 15, 20, 25%. So it's, uh, he's not only going after the companies and trying to get them to refocus on what he wants them to do, but uh, he's scaring off investors. And even Goldman Sachs has warned off uh, some of its investors in the investability of Chinese companies. Now, in the face of that, our old friend, Larry Fink, um, that BlackRock is telling investors that China's never been more attractive. Uh, you know, you and I talk about connecting the dots. Um, these these dots seem to be a million miles apart. I mean, it, it's very hard to figure out uh, with precision what's going on right now. He's actually said, as I understand it, in his you know missives to the investing universe, that uh, he thinks a balanced portfolio involves a tripling of investment in China. And I just have to tell you, Bill, I've got a sneaking suspicion. This was what would be good for Larry Fink, but not necessarily for clients. Um, There have been instances in the past where people have, um, well, self-dealt, I guess you might say. It doesn't end well, generally, for the clients in the first instance and often for the people making these kinds of uh, recommendations. Do you think that's likely to happen with a guy who's got told now $10 trillion under management? Yeah, they, they, I think he just went over, went north of $10 trillion in the last month or two. You know, as we've talked about, BlackRock has been is the first firm that's allowed to launch a wholly owned subsidiary in China managing Chinese money. 
And there is a huge China uh, consumer market, you know, four or five trillion dollars, trillions of dollars of investment savings in China. And, in China, and Larry's eyeing that, I'm sure. But in terms of investing in Chinese stocks, uh, I'd advise people to stay far away at this point because they're finding new lows. But, uh, you know, as you see with lows, you can go down 50 percent and then go down another 50 percent if, uh, if you're being attacked by your own government. And Xi seems to be signaling something that's very interesting. He's not only signaling that he, these companies have got to invest in things that he thinks are strategic uh, 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 militarily for China and in terms of its, uh, its stabs of power, but he's also beginning to crack down on, on income inequality. And that's fascinating because there's a thing called the Gini Index, and it's a very complicated formula, but it basically tries to reduce the uh, to portray the differences in income equality in, in, in various countries. And it's uh, it's used by the left to beat up uh, people in the United States, saying, well, the rich are too rich. We've got we to equalize everything. Well, if you look at G- redistribute, it's, uh, that's what they do. Uh, you know, if you look at Gini coefficients, the, the, the most income inequality in the world right now, at least it was until recently with South Africa, at 63, and then going down the list, just a couple, Brazil's at 53, Jamaica's at 45, and according to the calculations uh, at the UN, the, the United States is 41. Now, they don't include transfer payments in that number, so I'd argue the Gini coefficient here is actually lower. And at the bottom of the categories, or, or the, the most equal, if you want equal distribution, uh, you can move to the Ukraine. Which is at 25. Um, so if that's your ideal, we have a country for you. But here's my point: China, by recent calculations, and the numbers are opaque. You don't really know. Came out at 70, which means it's higher than South Africa. And uh, you know, the uh, in, in China, the top one percent of households own about a third of its wealth. Uh, the bottom 25 percent and only one percent. Uh, the uh, you know the uh, well they've got uh, six they've got 600 million people in China that roughly 40 percent have monthly income under 140 dollars and in the in in so you've got that on one side of the equation on the other side of the equation China's added about 145 new billionaires uh, in the last two years uh, they've now got about uh, 2,400 households that have wealth of at least 300 million and up. And so what's going on in part with this crackdown is, yeah, Xi wants to show that he's going to be directing state resources in the strategic industries, but I think he's also signaling that he uh, he wants to shrink uh, this, uh, this uh, we're not, we, we've got kind of a, what's it, the Edwardian age or something in China where you got the rich people going around uh, uh, flouting their wealth, and you got to have roughly, you know, forty percent of the country is making one hundred and forty bucks, uh, one hundred and forty dollars each month. Uh, so there, there's that, and then it's so, and they've they've actually the rhetoric, the speeches, and there's a there's a term for, and I'm looking around for. Oh, I know here's the phrase. It's called common prosperity, and they're going to more assertively promote social equality. And common prosperity is not very well defined. I think it's whatever he 
he wants it to be. And- um, it does seem as though this may have um, a view to uh, trying to uh, make a little less uncomfortable uh, the lot in life of those like Larry Fink, who are simultaneously, as we've talked with you often, Bill, um, promoting on the one hand environment, social justice, and governance agendas in our own country, and turning a blind eye to the terrible record on the environment, um, governance, and social justice of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. So maybe by undertaking a, a redistribution of wealth that will improve their Gini scores and all the rest, uh, there'll be uh, a little less, um, you know, hypocrisy for his uh, his G's uh, friend, Larry Fink. Well, yeah, I mean, we're in the business of trying to see the connections and the connections are, are really interesting because if G can go out there talking about social equality and Reducing Gini coefficients. This, of course, is one of the things with ESG that uh, BlackRock is pushing. And so Larry can say, gee, look how China's working to make things more equal. Um, and it certainly gives him a good talking point, whether there's anything in reality or not, uh, you know, way too soon to tell. For sure. Bill, let me turn to another public policy challenge that is uh, top of mind at the moment or should be here in the United States. And that is the effort that is going to be mounted this week by Nancy Pelosi in the House of Representatives to secure passage of two uh, priority legislative initiatives of the Biden administration. One involves the matter of infrastructure, or so we are told. The other, a uh, sort of soft infrastructure uh, initiative that um, is estimated to cost something on the order of $3.5 trillion all in. Um, let's start with the, the old-fashioned definition of infrastructure, uh, roads, bridges, you know, ports and the like, um, maybe even throw in the digital infrastructure element. Uh, I'd like to see at the very least some money spent on hardening our electric grid uh, if we're going to be putting this kind of money out. I'm not sure that's actually addressed in this legislation, but yeah. um, there is yeah. an awful lot of other EMP. stuff that isn't EMP. actual, you know, uh, infrastructure that is uh, being financed, even by the so-called infrastructure bill, let alone this uh, this budget deal. So, uh, talk us through, Bill, what happens when you get this kind of money being thrown around uh, so blithely. Well, let's first put some put some color into what isn't what they consider infrastructure. It's 174 billion for electric vehicle subsidies. Um, it's 590 billion for Green New Deal manufacturing and job training. Including 35 billion for climate change research, um, you know, 100 billion for broadband subsidies. 35 billion. 35 billion for climate change research. Now let's dig into this slightly. If you want to understand why we can't get another side of the argument on climate change, is that all the money is going in on the left, and if you want a big job or research grant and you're in the climate industry, you've got to reach a conclusion that the left wants you to reach. People who are toiling on the other side of the argument don't get any of this $35 billion. And so what they're doing is they're buying more, uh, more um, quote, research to uh, support the conclusions they've already reached, which is they want to, you know, they basically want to shut the economy down to, uh, to, 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 to this uh, Green New Deal nirvana. Uh, but the other one, I think, is still in there. I'm not sure this came out. At one point, there was $30 billion for 75,000 more 
Internal Revenue Service agents. Yeah, that's I, in the, that's in the infrastructure bill. <laughs> that that's that's soft of a of a kind. That's for sure. But Bill, the the point that I guess I really wanted to get at with you is, in addition to throwing money at pet projects of the hard left, um, what we're seeing here is just unimaginably vast sums of money that are being, as best I can tell, financed by simply printing more money. Um, what are the, am I right about that, first of all? And second of all, if so, what are the implications for not just the budget, but for our economy, for, you know, our debt, for interest well, rates, well, for well, inflation, well, they, for discretionary spending on things we need like military spending? Well, the implications are terrible. Um, you know, we're, we're spending now, you know, you can basically pay for this spending in three ways. One is raising taxes. Well, the richest 1% are already paying 92%, as much as 92% of all the other Americans in the United States. There's a lot, there's not a lot more uh, juice in that, uh, in that tournament, tournament. Turnip. The second way you can do it is borrow money. Um, our debt is now at about 23 to 25 trillion, counting. It's about 120% of GDP. It's never been that high since World War II. It's projected to go to 50 trillion. Um, and the third way you pay for it is you inflate. You just debase the value of your currency. And we've, re we've relied on our status as a world reserve currency, you know, basically we're saying, look, everybody's got to take the dollars, so why not just print more of it? Um, we're running a risk here of people eventually saying, look, we're going to find some cryptocurrency alternative, or God forbid, we're going to start thinking the Chinese currency is more attractive than the U.S. currency. I mean, we're we're pushing the envelope. We've never been. Uh, this is uncharted waters. And again, if we do inflate uh, by printing money, uh, the 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 pay out of this extravagant expenditure and uh, and and we didn't really even get to the 3.5 trillion which is soft infrastructure as you and I have talked I think money needs to belong in the hands of people who know what to do with it how to invest it productively and you take this kind of money and have a government spend it on these things there's no evidence that they can spend this money in any way that's terribly useful. I mean, look at all the failed deals back with energy and with Clinton, you know, Solyndra. But with even even with welfare welfare payments and time payments, which we've been doing for 100 years now, 90 years, uh, we still don't know what we're doing. The the the, the fraud in the in the welfare system is, is calculated by some to be about 25 percent almost 90 billion dollars of fraud just in the last year so we're, we're sending out these checks from the government by, by some calculations Steve Moore I think calculates that a family of four can get a hundred thousand dollars a year uh, from the various programs without working an hour and so you got this money flowing to people uh, but it's also being divvied up by divvied out by people in these various agencies who really don't know what they're doing. And so well, but it, it also uh, is a it's a model of state-run econ economics, is it not? I mean, essentially picking winners and losers and all of that uh, at at a at a grand level. And again, Bill, if if we're talking about these kinds of investments, it's bad enough 
if they were just a one-off. But what's being put in train, to some extent in the infrastructure bill, but also in the uh, the budget uh, that is being laid out here, the $3.5 trillion budget, is a huge new entitlement commitment uh, that, that would extend forever and cost untold sums of money, is it not? It's worse than the New Deal it was in the 30s or the Great Society was in the 60s. The recklessness with which they're doing this. And also, I'd say on the Republican side, the fecklessness, because they're, you know, all those senators are in the Republican senators are in this mix and they've gotten used to this uh, insane world of trillion, two trillion, three trillion dollar deficits. And they're just sitting there negotiating little pieces of these terrible bills. I mean, nobody stepped back to say, should we be doing this at all? Uh, some brave senators got to say, look, we, we, not, we ought not be negotiating this bill. We ought to be killing this bill. Period. And unfortunately, it's gotten this far. Uh, both of these bills, the infrastructure bill and the uh, and the budget reconciliation act, either with the connivance of Republicans in the first instance or uh, their inability to stop it being done through the budget reconciliation process. Um, so, Bill, let me just tease this out one more step because I, I think this is a place where, particularly, our audience is likely to be very concerned. If, predictably, the consequences of this kind of spending, this kind of inflation, is to create not only additional debt, but new pressure for interest rates to rise, to attract money, to have people hold our debt, at some point, the amount of money that has to be expended by the federal government to pay the debt simply to cover the costs of that borrowing is going to essentially preclude discretionary spending on other things, including the readiness and capabilities, the modernization particularly, of our military. So what's our defense budget now? About $600 billion? No, it's over 700 I believe. All right, $700 billion. But my point was relative to our interest on the debt, I think interest on the debt is four $500 billion range. And if we take our debt from $25 trillion to $50 trillion, about half of that new borrowing is going to come to pay interest on the debt. And that's based on CBO projections, which don't show rise, high and rising inflation and high and on rising interest rates, if interest rates go back to where they were when I started in the, the business world in the, in the 70s, late 70s, uh, you know, prime was 20%. If it goes to something like that and we're trying to finance our, 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 all, this, all this spending with 5 6 7% borrowing, we can't pay a dime towards defense. And that now, is that again that won't that won't happen. We're going to have some cataclysmic capital markets crisis that involves renegotiating all these uh, these arrangements. Bill Walton, thank you so much for your time today and for your expertise in these matters. We appreciate the chance. I to think I coined a new term for the Democrats and Republicans, Frank. It's the reckless and the feckless. Come back to us again next week, if you would, Bill. It's good to talk with you. I hope the rest of you will come back to us again tomorrow, same time, same station. Until then, this is Frank Gaffney. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney.